Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, for the past three going on four years, I've shared a Six Nations studio with Matt Williams. And in amongst all the rugby, we've swapped a few stories. His are better than mine, I have to tell you. But it's time we do this properly. So, Matt Williams, you're very welcome. Thanks, Jay. I'm, I'm here very reluctantly. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not so sure I've got a story to tell, but uh, thanks for having me. You are thoroughly embarrassed we're doing this. I am. I am. Okay. Very well, much so. On that note... So let's jump in. I mean, it strikes me, first of all, you're still fascinated by the game. I will still see you with your copybook open and X's and O's and asking Ronan O'Gara at certain points, what do you think of that exit strategy? It still excites you. I've been very fortunate, Joe. I've, I love the game, and I, I, I use that term exactly. I love the game. I've been fascinated by it since I was a little boy. And, uh, you know, my mum would say it's the main relationship I had in my life, you know. <laughs> It's a very sad thing to say for your mother tells you that, isn't it? Is she right? Yeah. Well, looking back now, uh, yeah, I, I was obsessive, which wasn't particularly healthy at certain points of my life. Um, but yeah, and I, I do find it fascinating. And I do still have my notebooks, and you know, I still ring up the odd guy here and there, and we have a chat. And and, and I, I'm, I'm very fortunate. When you love something, um, that's not work. It's not. It's not a sacrifice. You know, you're actually doing something you really love. And I've been really really fortunate to have that in my life Sydney 60s 70s what's that like I had a wonderful childhood I had a loving family uh, second generation Irish Australian but there wasn't a lot of money going around and I was the youngest of four boys living proof that the rhythm method of contraception <laughs> used in the Catholic Church doesn't work I was seven years behind my, uh, my next brother, and uh, so I was very much an afterthought. But it was great having three older brothers and they were all into their rugby. And because, you know, they were, Dad worked in a factory, Second World War, lived through the Depression. They didn't have a lot of money, but we didn't, I didn't know that. But what we had was Saturdays was rugby, Sundays was rugby league. I lived at Eastwood where my dad had played for the famous Eastwood club and we would go and watch Eastwood play, watch my brothers play, I'd play. and then. Sunday we followed the Balmain Tigers Rugby League where my great uncle had played. So that, that was your weekend. Mm. And, uh, you know, in summer when you didn't have that, we went to the beach. So I had surfing and I had, I had my rugby and rugby league and I, I, I still have all three and, and adored it. Didn't, didn't know there was another life. <laughs> it, it was a bit weird. You know, I was obsessive about it. Like mm. I could name teams and scores from the 1940s and could name your grand final sides. I can't remember my pin number, you know, like, <laughs> how does that happen? Yeah. But it, w it wasn't forced on me. It was, it was what I wanted. Um, and I, I'm, I'm certain at times my parents used to just shake their heads and say, where did this kid come from, you know? Like, but it, it, I was lucky with that because it was a simple life, but I loved it, you know? Yeah. So what was the playing career then? I mean, I loved playing. I just adored playing. Um, you know, I played rugby and rugby league 
Saturday and Sunday, I would have I kept going. Except your body starts giving out on you when you're about 16. That gets pretty hard. And I played uh, up until I was 32. I will not. All my friends are watching this. So I'm, I've got to tell the truth. I was never a great player. <laughs> I loved it. I played. Uh, I left school in 1978, and I played till 1992 at uh, Eastwood Rugby Club, which uh, I, I owe a lot to. And then again, at a very unfashionable rugby club that I owe a lot more to, which was Western Suburbs Rugby Club in Sydney. Home grounds Concord over where the first World Cup was. Uh, and I learned so much about leadership and uh, community and, and friendship. And, and we, we call it mateship in Australia. And we have a saying, you don't let down your mates. And I, I was taught so much of that by playing rugby with such wonderful uh, people mm. and in such wonderful organisations. With older guys that gave so much to us as young men. And we didn't understand that at the time. I didn't go through thinking, oh, this is the education I'm getting. It wasn't until I was much, much older and in leadership roles myself that I started to realise how fortunate I was to have been at those clubs. And what was work in the midst of all this then? What was Matt Williams doing Monday to Friday, nine to five? Well, I started, um, I was very young in my class. So I left school, I was 17. Uh, and I, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And my, uh, my dad was a pretty wise guy, never gave speeches or anything, but he, uh, he organised me to start work as a uh, labourer for bricklayers. And there were four Croatian bricklayers and I had to provide the cement for four Croatian bricklayers starting at 6.30 in the morning in the Australian summer. I figured out pretty quick I didn't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't want you either. They, they didn't want me and I didn't want them. Money was good. And uh, look, I... I I come from a family of school teachers and I went into education right. and uh, it was the right thing for me. I'm a, that's what I am. I'm an educator. Uh, I didn't teach for very long. I only taught for four years. Um, I loved it. I adored it. But uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't... The institutions weren't for me, uh, which probably tells you another thing about myself. I don't really handle authority that well. <laughs> and I was very fortunate again that rugby opened a door for me to go in at a time when... There wasn't professional rugby, we were still amateurs. Mm. But the New South Wales Rugby Union and the Sydney Rugby Union started to put on some development offices, which is basically teaching rugby. So at 28, I was able to, to start into rugby when, when everyone else was still amateurs. And then I got a, a very lowly paid job. They gave me a Mazda, tiny little Mazda and a bag mm. of balls, sent me to the Western suburbs of Sydney, which is uh, about 3 million people and said, Go at it, son. <laughs> that was the direction I got. <laughs> then I coached. I went back and coached Eastwood at a very young age. My club contacted me when I was 33 and asked me to come back my first year out of playing, which was a big call for them. And I was coaching Eastwood and I was coaching international Stevie Tymon, who I played with, Marty Roebuck, Matt Burke, the great Australian fullback was in that side. And we had a young side and we, we did well. We made the semis, won, won our first couple of semis a couple of years in a row. And all of a sudden, my name started getting spoken about in rugby terms. And then I got a whole lot of luck. A great mate of mine got very ill. That sounds like it's not much luck for him. But he was going on the Emerging Wallabies as, a, as an assistant. Mm. And at very short notice, because I worked for New South Wales Rugby, the Australian Rugby Union took me to South Africa in 1993 with the Emerging Wallabies. John Conley was coach. Uh, Nelson Mandela was just out of jail. We... South Africa had been in isolation for 25 years. We couldn't conceive of ever going to South Africa because of the apartheid. And here I was on a plane 
seven weeks in South Africa, the last of the big old amateur tours, all those wonderful historic rugby grounds we played at, Ellis Park, Loftus First Field, and uh, like it was just an incredible trip. But I, I was an assistant, a, a very minor assistant, John Conley, mm. who I got a great relationship with. And Bob Dwyer, Rob McQueen, Paul McLean, Bob Templeton, all these guys had come across on the trip as selectors. And all of a sudden I was under their noses. I was learning from great, great coaches and I was in the system. So pre-Leinster, that late 90s period, mid to late 90s period, that's Waratahs. Yeah. Tell us about that. Fun, in over your head, bit of everything. Bit of everything, <laughs> yeah. I remember sitting in the car at training thinking, you idiot, Williams, mm. you know, you, what have you done? These guys are going to see through you, you know. You, I was sweating bullets, you know. Like, yeah. Oh, my God, you know, he's, he's these great players. They won the 91 World Cup and I'm going to coach them. They're going to treat me like a fool, you know. <laughs> And now if they were asked to go, yeah, sure, not a worry, what do you want? <laughs> but at the time it was, it was, uh, it was big and there were days you, you thought you were over your head, uh, especially my first year as head coach. I was 36 and there I was head coach uh, of the Waratahs and the profile of the Waratahs coach then was just enormous. You know, it was, it was huge and I was totally and utterly out of my depth. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't waving, I was drowning, you know. And how did you do? Uh, mate, we did okay. We did okay. Um, we had it was it was tough because I had the the first year I had to jettison a whole lot of guys, a lot of great players. David Campuzzi being one of them, and uh, retiring, and you know you got a lot of bad publicity. We brought some kids in, and we did really well. Yeah. And then in '99 we should have done a lot better. And uh, Matt Burke did his shoulder for playing for Australia. And we scored the second most number of tries in Super Rugby, but we couldn't kick a goal to bless ourselves. Okay. We kicked below 50 percent. And we missed the semis by a point. Um, and in the middle of that, my brother, Kim, uh, got a brain tumour and died in the middle of that process. And that was, without doubt, the hardest time of my life, without doubt. Uh, him dying and trying to hold the Waratahs together and my family together as he was spent that six weeks dying was uh, certain periods that I don't remember. Nice. I was sort of looking back, I was... I was on autopilot, you know, and I was, was just sort of fighting on every front. And I had a year to run him a contract and I just, uh, I just told, went under my boss, who was a great guy, John Wynne Stanley. He was my CEO and a wonderful chairman in Ian Ferrier. And I just told the guys, I just can't do this for another year. It's just not right. right. Moody, Moody were chasing me and it would have been doing the wrong thing by, the, by rugby and by the organisation. I've been at New South Wales 10 years and they've been a great organisation to work for, have been incredibly loyal to me, have taken me from a development officer right through the process to head coach. And um, I would have been doing the wrong thing by them. And it turns out I did the right thing by myself too. Mm. But, you know, my brother and I, silly thing to say, very close. I was in South Africa and the phone rang. Uh, we're playing uh, Free State. And uh, my oldest brother was on the phone telling me my other brother had a brain tumour was going to last 28 days. And he was a great open side flanker. A fantastic family man, big guy, absolutely unbelievable athlete, the best athlete of the four of us. And uh, you just didn't believe he could, he was going to die in 28 days. He said, no, oh, and I'm sort of one of those guys. I said, my brother John, I said, listen, just relax. I'll get home. We'll sort it out. This isn't happening. And and that's the sort of, you know, <laughs> you're a control freak. You control everything. And I got home and, and uh, you know, this was out of our control. And he was dying and he accepted it. He was incredibly brave. But he died on the 28th day. Wow. You know, Good Friday, 1999. 
And he died at 4am in the morning and I had to coach uh, the Waratahs against Auckland that night at the Sydney Football Stadium. And it was the great Auckland side with Carlos Spencer and Jonah Lomu. And, uh, you know, we put up a great front, we got beaten, but you, you sort of, I'd probably not done the team justice really that week knowing he was dying. So it was a, mm. it was a particularly difficult time. There aren't many jobs where you're going to work that day when your brother dies. No. You know, there, there weren't many jobs you'd do that, but I, I, I also, uh, Kim had told me to keep going. Right. Like he, had, he was a rugby guy. And when he, was, he was a funny bloke. When he was dying, he said, look, if you come to visit me, you can't be upset. You, you, you've got to come with a smile on your face and we've got to laugh. And I kept thinking, well, what do we do? So I used to pull out all these old tapes we used to watch as kids of the, of the great Six Nations games. Because when we were kids, we'd bring them. So I'd bring in these old videos and we'd put them on and we'd laugh and watch them. And, do, and, and he, he was always at all the games I played. He'd retired himself. He was, a, he was a very good flanker, but he'd retired. He was come watch me play. Then he, all, he came to all the games I coached with, uh, with his kids. So he just said to me, make sure you keep going. Like, don't stop for me. So, um, and that night at the game, like all our family came, our cousins and everyone, that was sort of, after the game, we sort of had his wake there that day. Yeah. Um, and, and it was uh, something he would have liked, you know. Mm, I'm sure. We're going to take a short break and then the Irish adventure begins. More from Matt Williams in just a moment. Now you're welcome back. So reluctantly we have forced Matt Williams to sit down and reflect on his career with us. We have covered the Australian years, we're now going to the Dublin years. So Matt Williams, how does this all happen? I'd like to say it was well planned, it was a bit like the Indiana Jones uh, movies mate, I just made it up as I was going along. <laughs> I came over for the World Cup in 99, my best friend in Sydney was at me to go to the World Cup. I said, the last thing I need is rugby, mate. I, you know, I really need some time away from rugby. Yeah. He was at me and at me and at me. Anyway, I, I, we came over for the quarters, semis and final, and there was a whole group of us who had been friends since we were kids, and we were all turning 40. And it was the first time we'd been away since we were married and things like this. And it turned out to be a wonderful, wonderful time, wonderful two weeks. Um, for us as people, it changed almost every guy that came away, their life changed. They either went and started their own business, they changed careers. And for me, I basically came away to the World Cup and never went back. Mm. And what had happened, I came over here, I think it was a quarterfinal, was in Dublin, and Mike Ruddock was coaching Leinster at the time, and I'd played from, with Mike at Swansea in 84, 85, and I caught up with him. Long story short, he said, why don't you stay on and for six weeks and coach the backs at Leinster for the Heineken Cup because it wasn't, the Celtic League didn't exist. The, the provincial clubs, provincial teams only played a handful of games, Heineken Cup and, a few, and the Interpros, then they went back and played with their AIL clubs. So I, did, I, I really didn't know if I was doing the right thing. Um, the, the Leinster said they'd bring over my family for Christmas, so we said yes, so it'd be six weeks. And uh, we came in and it was, it, I just couldn't believe how hard Mike had to fight to get a team on the field, you know, like it was, he had, the gear was in his boot and Johnny O'Hagan, who was the legendary Leinster gear steward is still there, he had a van and we'd turn up at St Michael's or Belvedere or, or Wanderers and we'd train with nothing, mm. you know, it was like going back to the under eights and I'd come out of Super Rugby, which was very professional, 
you know, we had great training venues. Uh, you know, in, into this, I, I, I really couldn't believe it. My last game for the Waratahs was against Ireland. Brian O'Driscoll played. And we, the Waratahs had their Wallabies away. They were getting ready for the test. So we played with like a second 15. And we beat Ireland about 39-18. It was 38-39 to not a lot. And Brian played that day. And I had no memory of Brian playing because he didn't excel. So I thought if we could beat the national team of the second New South Wales team, the club size not going to be very good. And uh, I was just totally blown away by the talent that was there that day. And I was shocked in a beautiful way by the quality of the athlete that I was seeing. You know, Dennis Hickey, Gordon Darcy, Brian O'Driscoll, Shane Horgan, Gervin Dempsey, Malcolm O'Kelly, Reggie Corrigan, Victor Costello, uh, uh, Trevor Brennan, uh, Shane Byrne, Emmett Byrne, you know, like it, Liam Toland, that, that this was a really talented group of young guys. Mm. And that back line, like Brian and these guys were all 21. Gordon Darcy was just out of school. You know, it was typical Leinster we had that they had this up and down, up and down um, form. That as I often joke with them, you know, they were, they were a drinking team with a rugby problem. You yes, know, they, they would admit as much themselves, yeah, I think. They weren't, professionalism had not, they were a million miles away from the standards required. Was it apparent to you even very early on that Brian O'Driscoll was going to be Brian O'Driscoll? No, no, not at all. Brian's, I had this conversation with him uh, years ago when he was coming to the end, we had a chat and uh, Brian was on a self-discovery. You know, it was, a, it was a road of self-discovery in every sense. Jose Marino says, everyone learns to be a professional. You're not born a professional, you learn. And that was the same with these guys. Mm. Brian, um, there was a day uh, about two or three, two years later, before he went on the Lions tour in 2001, and we played uh, Pontypridd here in the early stages of the, of the Celtic League. Mm. And uh, Brian scored three tries, was just on fire, absolutely on fire. And that was the day I realised this guy's something else. He's, he's going to be something really special. And I went to the, the away change room and I, the old coach, who's a lovely guy, was, was sitting there, he had his hand in his hands like this. <laughs> and I went up to him, I just patted him on, I said, mate, it's got nothing to do with you or me. I didn't do that. You didn't do that. I said, O'Driscoll did it. I yeah. said, he's going to do it to a lot of others. And then, of course, he did, he went to France, he got picked in the Six Nations. That's when he scored his, his hat-trick in Paris and they won in Paris and he was picked on the lines. And, he came back from that Lions trip a different human being because mm. he'd been around Martin Johnson and all these guys who were professional, like the Leicester guys and that English, so they, were, they were a million miles in front of Ireland at that stage. Mm. And then he started demanding at training, demanding of me, demanding of the players, setting standards, driving the standards. And then he became a captain mm. uh, very, that year. And so you, the head coach from 2009, these, these two, three years, yeah. Where are you? You're, so you're kind of early 40s as a coach. Yeah. Are you a good, bad, indifferent? You're finding your feet a little bit, or are you starting to think, uh, I'm not so bad at this myself? Yeah, you get the, the crazy part with coaching is just when you figure it out, they usually sack you. you know, <laughs> that's the, like, I don't know if you go to Eddie, Eddie O'Sullivan and put him back, Eddie would be a great coach because you've made all your mistakes. Yes. And they keep going to young guys, they haven't made all their mistakes, <laughs> and they've got to keep doing it. Someone's going to figure it out. So, you know, if, if you can survive, uh, and hang in a place for three or four years and they keep you on, you become a really fantastic coach because you establish your relationships, there's trust and all that. 
Where was I? Mate, I, I was growing as a coach for sure. I'd made a lot of... I wasn't ready for the Waratahs. I was too young. Mm. I, I also had a really tough group of guys in Australia. They were not easy people. Um, a lot of them weren't pleasant people. They were great players, but they were not nice human beings. And they were parts of it. You were bullies to, their, to everyone. Uh, where you came to Leinster and, mate, they were just fantastic guys. Mm. Well, forget about them as rugby players. As human beings, there wasn't a bad one. And they cared about the jersey. They started to believe and they started to believe they had a mission. They started to believe in the organisation and started to believe that they could be as good as Munster and better. And they, and they honestly started to believe they could win competitions and win in Europe. And that took a long time. It wasn't like after a week. That took, took time. But they, they also supported me and our staff and we had wonderful doctors wonderful physios the, the whole group was was united so if we're talking leinster highlights then winning the celtic league and beating munster in the final as well that's got to be right up there it was very um, satisfying for sure uh, and and very big i think in the the beginnings of self-belief for that group and for the club because we were um, very much in the eyes of everyone in ireland the little brother behind Munster's big brother. Uh, and even that win didn't, didn't do that. Uh, it took a long time. But, uh, you know, I've, I've got two Munster grandparents and I, I, I always say that there's a fair bit of Munster dog in me as well, mm. you know. And I, I had a big joke with... The, fir the first time I was in... Uh, I was with Leinster. I got in on the Wednesday and we played Munster on the Friday. And Munster... I was up at Donnybrook gave Leinster an old hiding, you know, and it was Rona Gara played Keith Wood, John Hayes. You know, it was a great Munster side against a really good young Leinster side. And afterwards, as it, as it goes on, they used to go to Kylie's. Both teams would go to Kylie's and have a few drinks. And the late, great Axel Foley is standing in the middle of the floor at Kylie's yelling at us, see you in Bucharest. See you in Bucharest, meaning because we were losing against in the Interprose, we wouldn't make the Heineken Cup. We'd have to play in the Challenge Cup in in holes like Bucharest. And I remember sitting there going, I don't really like that. I'm not real happy that you're saying that. And, and Malcolm O'Kelly's going, Matt, just, I only knew Malcolm for a couple of days ago. That's just, just foals being foals. Years later, I told Foal Anthony, I told him that story. And he laughed and laughed. He said, well, that, did I say that? I said, yeah. He said, sounds like something I'd say. <laughs> like but from that moment on, I thought, I really want to jam it at these guys. We won 16 games straight leading up to that. And that's the biggest winning record in Leicester history up till this year when Leo's team did that unbelievable run of 25, which no-one's going to ever beat. Leo's never going to beat. That's just an incredible run of unbeaten games. And we got to that game and, uh, you know, poor... Uh, we, we were pillared in the, in the media. The Munster forwards were going to kill us. And I remember cutting out of them all, sticking them up in the change room doors and Willie Anderson firing them up. And at the beginning, Munster were all over us. In the first half, they scored a couple of tries and then... Uh, you know, we, we had a, a player sent off for kicking, um, which is, is a terrible thing to happen. But it, it did occur and, and, and it, we were a player down at halftime. And, and I don't remember anything I've said at halftime and I don't think a player ever remembers anything a coach said at halftime. But I remember what I said and the players strangely have said it back to me, which, which is very unusual because you never remember what a coach says. And I just said, everyone in the, in the country thinks we're going to fold and that they're better men than us. I said, and we can't talk our way out of that. We've got to act our way out of it. And, you know, 
I said, what a great opportunity. Here it is. And Eric Miller was sitting in the corner who was the player sent off. And it was so unlike Eric. It was just, but you, people use that term mind statement. Eric was inconsolable. He's in tears. And uh, the guys went out and to their credit, we played Leinster rugby. I kept saying that you're not going to boot and boot a monster. You've got to get down in the gutter with them because they're tough guys. You've got to have the same mental and physical toughness. But we're only going to boot and burn us. And they scored two unbelievably great tries and kicked a couple of penalty goals and uh, beat them, the man down. And that was uh, sort of the makings of that team. They weren't quite there. We blew the Heineken Cup after that. The cup got stolen. <laughs> For a month it went missing and poor old Ken Ging, our manager, was having kittens. We couldn't find the cup. Uh, but that was them. They were full of character and full of laughter and... and you know, you couldn't help but love them because of, because of it. It took them ages to, to outgrow it and, and to, to really fulfil their potential. But uh, later that week, is a nice story. And, and it tells you so much about Munster people too and how wonderful they were. We boot them and, and we, we had two weeks off then. And I, I loaded the car up. My sister-in-law was over and uh, we went down to Dingle for the week and we got stopped at a, uh, a garter check for the for your insurance papers, you know, and all this. And the guard looks in the window and sees me and just says, I've been dreaming of this day to get <laughs> hold of you. And he looks in the back. There's a kid in the back. He says, say goodbye to your dad. We're locking him up. Mick, he calls out, look who I've got here. <laughs> he says, you're gone, mate. You're gone. <laughs> he then said, where are you going? And I told him. And he said, oh, my brother's got a B&B up there. He rings up his brother. And we stayed the night at his brother's oh. B&B. So only in rugby and only, only in Ireland, you know. You won the Celtic League, you get to a mm. Heineken Cup semi-final. Yep. That seems like a good innings from your perspective. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, the semi-final we lost, you know, we probably shouldn't have lost that game. We definitely shouldn't have lost that game. And that sort of hung around that group for a long time because the final was in Dublin. Um, and we should have made that final. We probably wouldn't have beaten Toulouse. Mm. That we had beaten them that year well and smacked them at home. But I don't think we were ready. And Leo Cullen, when he was still playing, said something to me one day about it. I think Leo's probably summed it up. He just said, Matt, you've got to stop worrying or thinking about it. He said, we weren't ready. We were too young. I think if I had a stayed, um, we would have done some other things in the next few years. And they started to believe they had a mission. They started to believe in the organisation and started to believe that they could be as good as Munster and better. And they, and they honestly started to believe they could win competitions and win in Europe. And that took a long time. It wasn't like after a week. That took, took time. But they, they also supported me and our staff. And we had wonderful doctors, wonderful physios. The whole group was, was united. It was always a regret leaving, but I'd do the same again um, because I wanted to coach international rugby. I wanted to coach Ireland at uh, Declan and then Eddie and then me was what I got told. Right. So, but I could have been waiting 10 years. Of course. And then there's no guarantee in 10 years. Leinster haven't got sick of you and sacked you. So it wasn't for me. For a relatively brief period, you know, 99 to 03, those Leinster years, it seems to have had a big effect on, you know, the subsequent however yeah. many in that you're, you yeah. know, obviously we'll get on to Ulster, but you're in the Irish media and yeah. friendships for life. Like I know you and Shane Horgan are close. You and a lot of the players would still keep in touch. Yeah. It'd be very easy for three years at a club to come and go and not have a lasting effect in your life. Those Leinster years seem to have had that effect. Incredible. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not lost on me um, how good Ireland's been to me. Mm. 
um, you know, f for doing this, it's been a real privilege, you know, mm. that, that, that I, didn't, I didn't plan, like, as you say, sitting in Australia coaching the Waratahs. I didn't think any of this was going to happen. I no. had no idea any of this was going to happen. And I owe all that to Leinster. Well, Matt did take the Scotland job. We're going to talk about that next. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now you're welcome back. We're chatting with Matt Williams. Boy, is he looking forward to this section. <laughs> the Scottish years. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, listen. <laughs> So 44 years old, you're at Leinster, as we've discussed, enjoying life, but, 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 you don't know, will you get the offer again to come into test rugby and you had been raised on Six Nations and yeah. Scotland come calling and ultimately you say, yeah, I'm going to give this a go. Yeah. Broad terms, I know 17 matches in just 18 months, 17 matches, three wins, and so that doesn't look pretty. Where do you want to start? Uh, Scotland came out in... 97 or 98 to Sydney and they played the Waratahs and Jimmy Telfer was coach. Yeah. And I got Jimmy Telfer and the coaches the next day around to my house for a barbecue, which is what we did in the amateur days. You know, you'd look after people. I was always looked after, so that's what we did. And Jimmy's this giant, stern, former headmaster who's a formidable human being. I love Jimmy. He's a great guy, but wow. He can scare you. We've seen the Living With Lions speech. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you, that's like that 24-7. You know? <laughs> and uh, anyway, it comes to my house. My family, I've got some friends over. We, you know, we had a barbecue, had a couple of beers, nice some red, Australian red wine. It was, you know, see you later. And uh, out of the blue, there's a phone call from Jimmy. You know, no, it wasn't. There's no, hey, Matt, how you doing? Jim Telford. Yeah, Matt. <laughs> 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 you know. Don't be mucking around. We want an answer in 24 hours. <laughs> you know, like, right. And uh, look, it, it was really through Jim. He's a guy I have massive respect for. Um, and I, you know, it was unbelievably flattering to be asked. I'm sure. I come in and I'm, I'm an extrovert and I'm smiling and telling jokes. And I remember looking out at the press conference and everyone's just looking at me like I got that mouth turned down like this going, what's this bloke? Where's he from? Because but, um, they just didn't, they didn't, never had dealt with anyone that actually enjoyed life, I think, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and um, 
we didn't have a lot of talent. We were going through, that's to say the least, and we, we were really, really struggling at 10. We didn't have a 10 to bless ourselves with. And uh, we, had, we had some good young kids. We, we capped a whole lot of new guys. But it was really in the background that we had the, I had the huge problem. We went through, I think, four CEOs and three chairmen in two years. Right. And there was a word that just came, I just used it, which was no. We want to do this, no. Can we do that? No. Can we change that? No. Hmm. And I, I, all the agenda I had, I just couldn't get through. They were so unfit. Like I, the first, <laughs> sounds funny, first session at, at, in a weights room with Scotland, I'm, I'm a little, I was not training, I was never a very strong person in regard to the rest of the team. And I'm lifting more bench press than five of the Scottish backs. And I'm 40, 44. And I'm thinking, wow, I knew we were in trouble, but I didn't realise it was that bad, you know. Our first game <laughs> was against England after they won the World Cup in 2003 at Murrayfield. In the meeting before the game, we've got a set of chairs out with white jerseys on them, setting up the England line out, trying to still convince the Scottish guys on who they had to take in defence off the line out. I mean, it was... I can't tell you how bad it was. Mm. The, the results didn't surprise me, but what did surprise me, I didn't have enough. I wasn't given time to fix them up, but that's certainly the way of the world. There were guys in that Scotland side that were more worried about themselves. So they were, they'd get 50 caps, 60 caps, because there's no one else. Sure. Wasn't, they wouldn't get picked in Ireland because they wouldn't have made the Irish side. That's, most of them wouldn't have played for Leinster. Now, there, were, there was a group of really good people there, don't get me wrong, and there was a core of players who were threatened because they knew they were found out. And that didn't work. Um, look, and ultimately you read the writing on the wall. So it was on Anzac Day um, 2005, and I went to the Anzac Day ceremony at Edinburgh Castle. Which was absolutely so moving. Anzac Day is, is, is our, Australia's national day, and I, I got a, a grandfather and three uncles, two of them buried in France, who were Anzac. So it's important to our family. And I knew I was getting sacked that day, and I thought, well, look, compared to the life those blokes had, compared to what they faced, is getting sacked. If that's the hardest thing that happens to you, life's pretty cool. Mm. So I went down, and uh, this is all in hindsight, and I got told, Ian McGeekin told me who had been an incredible barrier to every bit of change. He was a former coach. I couldn't get anything through Ian. I would never supposed to report to Ian, but they made me do it in the end. And that, before that, the great chairman, we had a great chairman in, and David, David Gray, and he, he, he was, uh, had this unbelievably booming voice, and he rang me one night. He said, Matthew, I'm the chairman, and I'm about to be sacked. And I said, you, how can they sack you? He said, do you think, it was just before the 2005, six nights, he says, can you win four? I said, there's no chance. Mm. He said, write down this number. I said, what is it? He says, the best employment lawyer in Scotland. <laughs> You'll need it. Nice. <laughs> and uh, David Mackay. I said, David, David Mackay was a lovely guy. And yeah, sure enough, we got pumped. But, you know, it was awful. You know, my kids were coming home from school crying and they were getting teased. Compared to Ireland, I got spat at. I got things thrown at me. I got abused. Yet my, my neighbours and, and so many other people in Scotland were wonderful. How, how early on in that, say, 18 months, 17 games, three wins, how early on do you feel, I ain't turning the ship, I'm a dead man walking here? Quite late. 
quite late. Yeah, okay, yeah. so you were optimistic. You thought we can get this going. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Did you make any mistakes? Yeah. Absolutely. Biggest one. Oh, getting rid of Gregor Townsend. Absolutely. Absolutely. What, so give us your thinking around that. Well, we were. We've. I was told, okay, prepare for the World Cup, 2007. We'll, we'll take. We'll take pain now, but we'll get ready for it. So this would be akin to. Uh, and Andy Farrell saying, Johnny Sexton, yes. you're gone yep. after the 2019 World Cup. Yep. That would be a yep. big call to make and a dangerous call for Andy Farrell to make. But you made that call with yep. Townsend. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, without doubt, the biggest error I made by, by getting rid of Gregor. And that was, uh, that certainly compounded it all. But it was, uh, you know, there, there are some funny stories from it. I was at them to build a gym. They had no gyms. So after about 45 committee meetings, they, they decided they'd buy the, the gym. They set the gym up. No one had set it up. So Willie Anderson and all the staff, we go down there on a Sunday with a couple of spanners and put the gym together. <laughs> we put the gym together and we're looking around and going, well, we've got the gym, we've got the bars. Where are the weights? Monday, there's no weights. We couldn't afford the weights. We'll buy them for you next year. <laughs> oh, no, no. no one believes this stuff. And I said, you're kidding me. Like, what's a gym without weights? Do press-ups on the floor. Uh, it was just amateur hour. You know, okay. there the, was one game we came down at half-time, we got locked out of the change room. <laughs> and the security guard had been told not to let anyone in. So we're the coaching staff. We're outside banging on the door. The security guard's just, no chance, brother. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So an interesting time. Mate, it, it, it was a privilege as well. Sure. It was a privilege as well. There's only been two Australians, one Australian before that, was Alec Evans coaching the Six Nations. And to tour Australia with another country was also a privilege. Mm. But it smashed me professionally, absolutely smashed me. You learn a lot, and you learn a lot about yourself too. Because you know, the other part I learned, you know, you, you, you look into that, that boost and you just sort of say, well, is that the best you can do? I'm still here, I'm not going away. Okay, life after Scotland with Matt Williams in just a moment. Now you're welcome back. We're chatting with Matt Williams. We've just dealt with the Scotland years, which I'm sure you enjoyed. What's the landscape like when you're re-emerging post-Scotland? Is the phone ringing? No, phone, the phone definitely doesn't ring. Yeah. But you also need to uh, lick your wounds. You need to go into a cave, you know. And again, I was very fortunate. In some ways, again, it was hard. I, I, that was when I said, okay, I'm taking my kids back to Sydney now. That's that's it. So I went back to Sydney, kids back into our our little community in Dremoyne in Sydney. It was a great little suburb in the inner west of Sydney, five k's from the city and in the inner side of the harbour. It's a great rugby area, great social area. And uh, my old club, Wes, rang up and said, "Would you come and coach for a couple of years and try and help us out?" Right. And and that really helped me. That really, you know, you got step back into your old community. Um, your old friends with all the same old jokes and knowing you and, and, and people you, you trusted with your life. Mm. That, uh, that, that was certainly a big plus for me. Did you still have confidence in yourself as a coach? Oh, yeah. yeah I never, I've never lost confidence in myself as a coach. Your confidence takes a whack uh, at certain times, but your self-belief doesn't. And w if you had your time over again, would you do things differently? And then would you do other roles? And the answer to that is, is definitely yes. Which you did, two years at Ulster, mm. 07 to 09. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was a really interesting one. They've, they've sacked Mark McCall, who was a friend of mine. Uh, Mark was assistant coach for Island A when I was coaching Island A. And I rang 
Smalley up and said, what's going on here? And, he, you know, I knew what was going on there and it was trouble. You know, the, the committee had, had their uh, nose in the team. There was a big split in the team and I didn't really want to do it. And they had no one left. And, and in the end, they said, look, we've got no one. Would you do it for three months? So I said, okay, I'll do, it for th I'll do it for the end of the season. I got there and, you know, that's where the addiction starts. It comes in again. I remember the first session. There's a freezing northerly wind. It's raining. It's mm. muddy. And I thought, God, I love this. Mm. <laughs> I just love this. This is so good. <laughs> and the first day, first session, there's a fight. There's a physical brawl between the players. And I'll never feel it was blood, you know, and it's n I've never seen a group so split. Okay, so this wasn't uh, healthy, this is how competitive this training is kind of fight, this was a divisive this was, fight. This was hatred. Hatred, okay. And there was a line right through the camp. Those that had supported Mark and those that had undermined him. Right. And it was very, very obvious where people stood. So we had to pump or let go or allow to let go a big number of guys. And healing that group was very, very difficult. Now, we, we had done a lot of good. So they were last when I got there. They were last in the Celtic League. And we, we finished the season halfway up. Then in the January of 2009, I think it was my last year, 2009, they gave me this glowing report, said, you're doing a great job, we'll keep going. I said, look, you're sure about this? So because I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I can do it. So they came back at the end of that last, the last game, the last three games, I rested a whole lot of players because we weren't going to make the semi-finals and we couldn't make Europe. And I went to the community and said, I'm going to rest these guys. These two guys are getting operations. We're going to get beaten pretty well in these last few games, but I'm getting ready for next year. You're all okay with that? Because if you're not, I'll, I'll keep them in. No, 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 it's a good idea. A good idea. And then they said, right, well, you come back. You go to Australia, see your family, come back in a month, we'll start pre-season. I said, all right, no problems, we'll do it. Get back to Australia and they say, Bring up, say, oh, listen, we're going to get someone else in. It, it was just dealing with really unprofessional and, and uncaring people. Now, within that side, you had some great people. You had Rory Best, who was the best captain I've ever worked with. Rory's a fantastic guy. You, had, you know, so, Darren Cave, wonderful. Paddy Wallace, you know, just, just great human beings who were trying their guts out for that, for that club. And in, and in the middle of it, you had some other guys who were undermining, not caring, and the thing with Ulster is we don't understand when you're down in the Republic, they get publicity like a national side. So they're in every radio show, every TV show, they're on BBC every evening, they're in the, in the, in the newspaper every day, and they've got no competition. There's not, nothing about Leinster, Munster or anyone else, it's just them. And some of, the, some of the guys get a really inflated view of where they are in the world. I'll give you a great example. We went down to Thumb Park and played a very strong Munster side. Ronan played that game, Alan Quinlan played, uh, Mick, Mick O'Driscoll played. And for the first time since like 1913 or what have been 1912, Ulster won down there. And that was a really good Munster side. They won well, they got a bonus point. It was a very, very good win, first time in, in 100 years. The next week they go over to Embra, and Embra were poor, you know, really poor team, and we lose. And so they had, they had no concept of consistency and dealing with that, that, that mental toughness and drive I knew Ulster would come through because the core of that group was growing and could do it. And they made the Heineken Cup final against Lancer a few years later. I wasn't surprised at all. Mm. And Brian McLaughlin, who came in, was a very good guy. Brian's a very nice guy. And then Brian has, has moved out as well. Up until this, this last uh, regime with Dan McFarlane, it's, I think it's been a, a, an organisation that has been involved with self-harm. Mm. But their supporters, again, 
I was treated fantastically in Ulster by the people and by the supporters. I could not speak highly enough of the Ulster rugby community and how I was treated. Moving to this past de decade, media's kind of jumped to the fore in your world, really. How do you find this, you know? Because I'm sure you're aware that what you're saying will irritate players and coaches and they're thinking here, I'm playing with a busted shoulder and my ankle's strapped up and the coach is managing 20 different things that nobody knows about and William sits there on the TV and he knows how tough it is and he's saying, this isn't good enough. How does, how does that sit with you? Uh, I'll be really honest with you. It took me a long time to be honest because I was protecting players and coaches. I was always thinking, Boy, that bloke's just exactly what you said. Yeah. You know, Joe Schmidt, he's the best coach we've ever had. He's put his heart and soul into Leinster. What he did with Leinster, I'm, I'm not only admired, I was grateful for because it's, mm. it's my old club, you know. I want to see my old clubs do well. But at the end of his time, I didn't think Joe was doing a good job. Mm. Now, And you have to accept you're getting on his wick and he's, yeah. looking, at, he's looking at the TV going, yeah. ugh, yeah. ugh. Yeah, yeah. But then I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be honest to the Irish people. So I sort of take the attitude that I'm coaching the Irish people now. I'm, I'm, I'm not just coaching a team. I'm coaching everyone that watches Virgin Media. When they come to the Six Nations, I'm trying to coach them about what's happening and trying to be honest. Mm. And that's that brutal honesty, I guess, we're brought up with, we, we, we're part of. Um, and I know it hurts players. People say, like former commentators, maybe Georgie Hook courted it and went out in purpose and did it. I don't. Um, but I guess with... Uh, with age comes the ability to wear bad hats and be grumpy, you know? <laughs> and you say lots of good things too. I mean, is the, but that's not remembered, clearly, you know? You've said a lot of lovely things about Joe Schmidt, yeah. but obviously the three, four times you don't, that's yeah. what's remembered. That's the nature of the beast, unfortunately. Yeah, look, after they beat New Zealand, I just came out in the Irish Times said, I believe they could win the World Cup. Mm. And I, believe, I believe, honestly believe that. And I still believe it. And I think if Joe... Who am, I to, who am I to say to someone like Joe Smith? But if, if, the, if the game had changed a little bit, allowed the game to develop, I think they could have done a lot better because after that game against England, the first game of the Six Nations where Eddie Jones had just picked it, and he, I know he had conferred with Michael Checker, ex-Ranwick guys, about how to beat Ireland. And once that was done, everyone knew how to beat Ireland. That's when great change was needed and we didn't get it. Mm. And it's a shame because the other part is... I, I'm very frustrated and very sad that every World Cup since 1987, Ireland has not fulfilled their potential. Ireland constantly come up short at World Cups because they don't plan for it. So to conclude, lots of ups and downs, but for the boy from Sydney, rugby has been the great magical carpet, the great vehicle of your life. It has been. It's been the making of me and the failing of me. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm very grateful to it. I'm very grateful to Irish rugby and to Ireland. But I'm, I'm very fortunate that I've got something I love. And, you know, my kids say, Don't, do you get bored doing what you do? And I say, yeah, I, I, I can't watch rugby all day, but I could watch a game a day as long as it's a good game and not be bored. Mm. Love it. Mm. And, and talk about it and analyse it and think about it and, and, and challenge other people to think about it and, and come home and think, gee, that was, a, that was 24 hours well spent. It's not a day wasted. Well, listen... It's been a pleasure. It's been fun to do this. You've been so good to me right from when I was a quivering mess when we first did this together. So, um, Matt Joey, Williams, it's you, been a pleasure. You're a natural, mate. It's lovely. Always lovely to work with you, Joey. Thanks so much.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 